if you're new here, we uh, typically preach through books of the Bible, and it'll be very helpful for you to have your Bibles open to this second letter of John, because we'll be making uh, many reference to it. There's one of the shortest books in the Bible, this and Third John, and we're going to read uh, through this this week and Third John next week. And so it'll be helpful for us as we read through it for you to notice uh, what I'm talking about here from the scriptures. Uh, as most of you know, for the last couple of weeks, I've been away on vacation and I visited an old friend a couple of Sundays ago, an old college friend who's now a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And so on that Sunday, we uh, went to his rather large church, and it was um, most of the building was a, a new part of something they had built. It was a very, very beautiful building. Uh, the music seemed very nice, and the preaching I thought was good. And but really, the two most encouraging things for me about visiting that church. One was I ran into a, a girl who I would not have recognized. She's 40-something. She has three kids. She's married. And uh, she said, now, are you Paul Phillips? And I was like, well, yes. I mean, that's when you're not sure if you say, no, my name is John. Um, and uh, so here she was. She looked like she was about my age. And she said, I just want to thank you. You were my young life leader in 1987 in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I cannot tell you how much young life meant to me in being able to see Christ when I was in high school. Oh, wow. Isn't that incredible? Here, I, th- I mean, I thought we were the same age. And, of course, at that point, she was a senior in high school, and I was probably 23. So we weren't that far apart being 45 and 40 now, but it seemed like at that point we were a long way away. And here here she was uh, thanking me for what very little I had to do with what went on at that point. The other thing that was encouraging was uh, being in the service, just recognizing that the service in this really large, sort of well-put-together church wasn't perfect. That was an encouragement to me. I mean, the, the preacher was preaching, and it took him about four or five minutes before the mic got on. And I was like, yes, love that. You know, that could have been the end of the service right there, and my heart would have rejoiced. Uh, the other thing that was great was I'm sitting there next to my professor friend and his wife, and about ten minutes into the service, somebody comes and taps the shoulder of my professor friend. Okay, and then he's leaving, and he leaves, and his wife leans over and says, you know, he's a part of a four-man team that teaches fourth and fifth graders during this hour, and they're all four professional men, hadn't figured out which one was going to be in the classroom that Sunday. And so, there was a classroom of fourth and fifth graders of 19 fourth and fifth graders and zero adults. And so he was a relatively tall guy. They could spot him in the crowd right away, and he was taken out. And I thought, yes, I'm sure Shelly Heinrichs is going to love that story. But it's just helpful in some way. I wasn't rejoicing over their problems. I was rejoicing with them in their problems. 
But just to, to know that, you know, the church isn't perfect. We're not going to somehow arrive and say, yes, we finally got rid of whichever problems that we may be facing. James Boyce wrote a commentary on the books or the letters of John, and he writes this in his introduction to the letters. There will always be problems in the church. If we didn't know better, we might think that certain earlier ages were relatively free of the plagues that trouble us. We might even argue that if ever there were churches free of problems, it would have been those churches over which the Apostle John himself presided. But there were problems there too. Schisms, confusion, false teaching, personality conflicts, and the desire for power. We can be encouraged by these facts. Not that we rejoice in other people having problems, but rather it helps to put our own problems in perspective. And so as we sort of dive into our summer series, we're going to be going through 2 John today and next Sunday, 3 John, and then the rest of the summer we'll be looking at the uh, first letter, 1 John. And John Gale, who most of you all know, will be here next week. Uh, He and his family are coming back for the summer And so we'll be sort of splitting up the time as we walk through until about mid-August the uh, first letter of John. So it'll be great, and John will help us as a church because he encounters all kinds of different people. He encounters all kinds of different issues and different problems, and he's, an, as the, the letter says, he's an elder of the church. And so he's trying to give some encouragement. He's trying to give some instruction. And so we'll benefit from his wisdom as he writes to these early churches. In this second letter, specifically this morning, what we see is John exhorting his congregation to walk in the right direction. And that's the title of the sermon. He's saying, okay, guys, I want you to to continue to walk in the right direction. And since walking is a a two-step process, I thought we would think about, you know, to walk, you have to have two steps together. You can't just have one step because then that's hopping uh, or you're just going in a circle. You just never really get anywhere. And so we have this two-step process. In order to continue to go in the right direction, you've got to have both of these together that John is telling us. And the two things together are truth and love. You see that in verse 3. And maybe another way of saying it is you have to have the right information. You have to have the right truth. But then you have to also have application. You can't just have application because if you don't, if you just have application, then you don't have a direction in which you're going. You have to have a truth and say, this is the truth. We are trying to go in this direction and we are going to walk this way in truth and love. So you have to have truth and love. You have to have the right information and the right application. But before I get to these two steps, I just couldn't avoid. This is just a pastor's pitfall. I mean, he's been off for a couple of weeks, and instead of just giving us one sermon, he's going to give us two sermons to make up for the time that he's off. And I could do a a whole other sermon on this topic, and I'm not, but I did want to just sort of give you today, because it's Mother's Day, sort of a two-for-one. And I just wanted to tell you what this, this is what my sermon would be if I wanted to go in this direction because I just couldn't pass it by. I thought it would be too helpful for us. And it's really looking at elders 
and how we should think about our elders and how elders should be thinking about themselves. And we just pick up a few things that are very helpful. And again, this is just the bonus section. We're just sort of stopping right here, and I'm giving you that second part for free. But when you look here, John is the elder, and most people would say he's not writing to a, an elect lady being a person. He's writing to a church. There's some division on the scholarship here, but most people think John's writing back to one of his old churches, and there's the congregation or the children in the congregation. And so he mentions three things that I think that are helpful about elders. First, he just has a certain style. When you read through the letter, you get the sense that he's exhibiting all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All these fruits are just sort of woven into the fabric of this letter. You get the sense that he's, he's writing to people that he really has a heart for, and he's encouraging them. And I want you to just notice in verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking into the truth. I, I, I'm writing back to this church, and I'm, I'm going to first be encouraging. I'm going to first point out to say, I have noticed some people are taking both steps. They are, are really going in the right direction. And so when we think of ourselves, or I think of myself as an elder, as I look at the other elders, or you look for other elders, one of the, the styles is that they're coming in really with encouragement. I think this is so helpful for elders. I think it's also very helpful for dads, very helpful for, for husbands. Is your first step when you're coming into a situation to think, how can I be encouraging? Or is it, how can I be critical? How can I be analytical? How can I be informational? You, you, you must have seen this. A child brings something that he's made to his dad. Look what I did. Just totally excited. Just can't wait for the dad to say, Wow, that's my son. Look, everybody. And the dad says, You know how you could have made that a little bit better? Oh. What, what a crushing blow. You just see the life drain out of this little child. And so John the elder, he's coming in, and he's going to say, look, many people are going in the wrong direction. He's going to tell us that. But the first step forward to his congregation is, I just want to tell you, some of you are doing a great job. Keep going in the right direction. So first, if this was my sermon, that would be my first point. My second point, if this was my sermon, would be back in verse 5. John is not writing some new information. He's not writing to say, guys, this is what I think. His starting point is outside of himself. It's from the beginning. Notice that phrase. He, he's pointing away from himself and towards Jesus. It reminds me of when we looked at Jeremiah, chapter 6, verse 16. Jeremiah, an excellent elder, an excellent priest. He says this to the congregation. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. 
Ask where the good way is and walk in that. A, a right elder is going to say, let me show you what the Bible has to say, not this is what I think. And so that's another characteristic of a great elder. And finally, verse 7, an elder is made of steel. So style, starting point, and steel. I just put those together maybe to help jog your memory. John is willing to, to take an immovable stance against deception. You just can't have an elder. You can't have a pastor who can't take a stand. I mean, look, there are lots of things that we have to decide. That you go, I don't know which way should we go on this. But the divinity of Christ, that's not one of them. That God came in the flesh. That He died for our sins. That He was risen from the grave bodily. And that He's coming back. That's just an area we have to stand up and say, no, we're not, we're not going to give in that area. Well, I'm going to stop right there. That's just the bonus part. Uh, but I want you to know those are important characteristics as we think of our church, as we think of elders, and application even to yourself. But let's get back to walking in the right direction. You have to have these two steps if you want to walk. You have to be stepping out in the right with the right information, the right truth, and then you have to be stepping again with the right application, or you have to be stepping in love. Let's talk about truth here. Just notice in the first four verses how often the word itself is used. Verse 1, love in truth. Know the truth. Verse 2, because of the truth. Verse 3, in truth and love. Verse 4, walking in the truth. If you're ever reading your Bible, and in the first four or five verses you read, there's one verse that's reoccurring, then obviously the writer is trying to emphasize, pay attention, this is, this is an important thing. And so we have this idea of truth just rolling around in John's mind. And two things that I think we learn here from the text. Verse 3, the source of truth. Where is it that truth comes from? What's the ground in which truth is going, growing out of? Where can we go to find the truth? And John tells us, look at verse 3. Grace and mercy and peace be with you. And then at the end of the verse, as well as truth and love. But where are they coming from? It's inserted right in the middle of that verse. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ. The, the source of all truth is growing out of a knowledge of Jesus Christ and God the Father. If you want to know grace, if you want to know peace, if you want to know truth, if you want to know love, you've got to find the ground in which to grow that in. And John is telling us the only way those things grow are coming out of the right ground of the truth about who God is. You remember John uh, repeats these words from Jesus in his gospel. Jesus says, I am What's he say? The truth. I'm the truth. Hey, I don't know which way to go. I am the way to go. I don't really know what life's all about. I am life. I'm not sure what's true here. I am truth. So if you want to know anything about your life, if you want to know anything about truth, you're going to have to find yourself 
in the ground coming out of what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures. So let's just remember this phrase. Maybe if you don't remember anything else about this sermon, truth resides outside yourself. You're not going to find truth by looking inward. It's going to have to reside outside of yourself. And not just anywhere, obviously. I'm believing that the Bible is saying that's where you can find truth. But you're not going to find truth by looking in. And the reason I say that so emphatically is that in our culture, that's the predominant idea. Is if I can just go inside somehow, I'll find the truth. And then once I sort of find that, then I know how to live my life out. And so we have a lot of people who are trying to get inside and think, if I get to the right place, I'll find the truth. Oh, if I could just discover the truth inside. Now, this may be somewhat dated here, and maybe if you're 35, you'll appreciate this, but there was an old Mariah Carey song. I, I just loved her voice. She didn't have great lyrics, but, man, I just loved her voice. And she sang a song that I think other people have sung. The title of the song is Heroes. And just, just listen. I mean, when, I wish you could, you could just hear her voice because you go, yes, that's right. And then you go, no, no, that's, that's completely wrong. And then a hero comes along. Should I try to sing it like, no, I won't. With the strength to carry on. I'm, I'm going, yes. And then you cast your fears aside and you know you can survive. So when you feel like hope is gone and I'm just leaning in going, yes, I have felt like that. Give me the answer, Mariah Carey. What does she belt out? Look inside you and be strong. And you'll finally see the truth that a hero lies in you. I mean, we sing this stuff. We swim in the soup of that it's inside. If I can just somehow get inside, I'm going to get the truth. How many times have you run into this college student who graduates and has to backpack across the world to try to find themselves? Or you get a 45 or 50-year-old man who's going through some midlife crisis, and what he needs to do is find himself. If you're lost, don't find yourself. Because you're lost. You need to find someone else. Isn't that right? And so John is saying, don't look inside. You're lost. You need to look outside of yourself. And there's only one place to find truth. There's only one ground in which the truth grows out of it. And John's telling us it's from God. It's from Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, we want to just examine just for a moment what is truth. So if we can find the truth in, in God, then what is the truth about God? And John doesn't unpack every truth here in this letter. That's the benefit of just sticking to what the letter has to say. So I'm not going to unpack every truth there is, but he's fighting against a very specific kind of false doctrine that's making its way in. And we'll talk about it more, especially as we get through the first letter. 
But look at, let's look at verse 7 together. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. And this is the deception. This is what they're telling people. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's the very specific deception he's working on. People are coming. They're setting themselves up as teachers. They're taking pulpits and they're telling people, well, yeah, Jesus, but he didn't really come in the flesh. And there were a couple of different ideas that were going around. In verse 8, John is saying, now watch yourselves. And in verse 9, just notice this language. He's warning people about people who go on ahead. And he's not, ta- he's not talking about physically moving ahead. He's saying people who think that religion is sort of progressing ahead. Oh, yeah, that's what they thought about then. But, you know, we've sort of aged now. We've sort of matured. We have some intellect that those poor saps didn't have back then. And so now we know some more information. And, and there's sort of an evolutionary process to this whole religious experience. And so we've, we've gone on ahead. We, we don't really think Jesus came in the flesh. We don't think God appeared in the flesh. Yeah, I mean, if you lived 2,000 years ago, you would be stupid enough to think of something like that. But now we're sort of too educated. We're, we're moving out. We're moving on. John Stott, in his commentary on the book, has an excellent quote. The apostle was borrowing the vocabulary of the heretics. They claimed to have a superior knowledge which enabled them to advance beyond the rudiments of faith of the common herd. They had advanced so far ahead, they even left God behind them. The the reason this is so important is you're going to hear it today. This is not a battle that just happened back then. It's a battle that's been ongoing through the church and will continue on out. I was at a, a lecture at UNCW and a pretty well-known speaker came and he called himself a Christian. And he used a lot of the same vocabulary that you and I would use. And if you sort of just eliminated a few phrases, you would say, well, it sounds like he thinks what I think. Uh, But then he denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And then at the end of the lecture, there was some Q&A, and a student asked him this question. Do you think that Christianity as we know it will exist in 500 years from now? And he said no. It will have evolved in 500 years. And it won't be as we know it any longer. You see, that's the deceiver coming in. Coming in a very critical point in the life of a young person. Standing up and saying, oh, well, I understand that people back then could have believed it. But see, today we're evolving. And John's trying to help his church. They're only 30 years or 60 years out from the death of Christ. And they're already having struggles. And he's saying, guys, we're never going to evolve past that God came in the flesh. We're never going to evolve past that he died as a substitute on your behalf on the cross. And that he came out of the grave. We're never going to get past that point. That's where life is. And if we lose that, then we've lost it all. 
And so John is, is warning us. We, we've got to have the right truth. We've got to understand which direction we're going. And it's so important today, especially if you're in college, and I think about these college folks who are graduating. I mean, you get into the academic institutions or you get in sort of these philosophical debates, and as a Christian, you're sort of made to feel like a Neanderthal. I mean, come on. We don't, that's sort of what your grandparents believed or maybe way back then. And John's trying to help us, and I hope you find at least some encouragement. This is the same argument. There isn't anything new about this. This is the same thing that happened 60 years after the death of Christ. They were battling over what the truth is. So we know what the truth is. We have that step down. And then the second step is we have to have an application. You know, it's not enough. Well, let me say, you should know. It's not enough just to have truth. That's not enough. Satan has the truth. He just doesn't want to walk in it. So you can have all the truth you want, and you can be as far away from God as possible. You have to have some application of what you're, you're, knowing, you're knowing as the truth. And John tells us that next application is in verse 5. Now I'm asking you, notice that pastoral sort of commitment. He's not just making a demand. Certainly he could have as the elder. Certainly he could have as an apostle. But, hey, I'm, this is what I'm asking you now. Now that you know the truth, I'm asking you to walk in it and to love one another. That's the second step. Now, when you and I hear the word love, almost immediately some, something of an emotion comes to mind. Love means I have a certain kind of feeling, a certain kind of reaction to something. And so maybe just John anticipating that kind of question in verse 6, I want you to notice that he actually provides the definition of the word that he just used. He says, I want you to walk in love. I want you to love one another. And then look at verse 6. And this is love. Just in case you're not sure what the way I'm using the word, I'm going to give you the definition now. That we walk according to His commandments. What is love? To walk according to His commandments. Now, John is not eliminating feelings or emotions. He's just saying that's not the ground out of which you do things. Does that make sense? You and I can have feelings for one another. We can have feelings. Feelings for our spouse. But feelings aren't the ground in which I'm operating out of. The ground in which I'm operating out of never shifts. It's the commands of God. I'm going to have a certain action towards somebody even if I don't have a feeling towards somebody. Love is an obedience to something, not a feeling. And so John Stott again says this. So many people will say, how can you tell me to love someone I do not love? When love is defined as an emotion, then it appears to lie beyond my sphere of duty. I mean, you just can't make yourself feel a certain way. But Christian love rather belongs to the sphere of action rather than emotions. 
Christian love is not involuntary. It's not uncontrollable passion. But it's unselfish service undertaken by a deliberate choice. Christian love is unselfish. It's taken by a deliberate choice. Now, this is fine, but give me some biblical examples of that, Paul. Can you think of any? That love is really defined as an action rather than a feeling. Just think in your in your mind, file through the Bible. Where where could you find an example like that? Well, because it's Mother's Day, I have to work this one in Ephesians five. What does Paul what does Paul say about husbands? Husbands, what your wives? Love your wives. Husbands, have good feelings about your wives. That's not what he's saying. He's not eliminating that. But he tells you exactly how he's defining love. In case there's any confusion that you think, I'm saying you must have certain feelings about your wife all the time. I'm not saying that. I'm going to give you the definition for it. Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ loved the church and came for and laid down his life for her. Does that make sense? It's not a feeling-based operation. Feelings can come. Feelings can go. But the ground in which you're operating out of never shifts. Christ laid himself down for the church. Therefore, husbands, you've got to lay down your life for your wife. You're going to have to lay down some dreams. You're going to have to lay down some pride. You're going to have to lay down some comfort. You're going to have to lay down some time. You're going to have to take an action. You can't say, I just don't feel it right now, Paul. I'm not asking you to feel it right now. I'm just asking you to be obedient. And we're going to see love when it's in action, not just a feeling. 1 John 4 Look, there's a hundred examples. John again says this. This is love. You know this verse. Not that we love God, but he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. Dear friends, since God so loved us, since he demonstrated something, we ought to love each other. This is love. That God laid himself down for us. And because that's happening, then we're able to love one another. Now look, we could come up with a hundred biblical examples. But let's just say you're here and you're not really sure about the whole Christianity thing. And it's fine that, Paul, you're a preacher and you're into this and your examples are coming from the Bible. And you probably ought to make that happen. But I'm not really sure I'm even trusting the Bible So would I see this action out in my world? And what's the answer? Yes, you would see it. That love is an action, a sacrificial action. That's how we define it in the world. You know how you get a Congressional Medal of Honor? Almost, I think it is the highest medal you can get as a soldier. Almost all the medals are awarded to family members. You know why? 
because the soldiers died trying to save somebody. And we as a government say, this person loved. Did he have feelings for everybody? No, he had an action towards somebody. And we're giving him a medal saying, you've done the very highest thing you could do for another person. You've laid down your life. That's in the culture. That's not in the Bible. A snake is in a tree and is coming towards a nest with little birds in it. They can't yet get away. And what is the mother bird willing to do? Step in front. Be swallowed whole in order to save a soul. That's love in nature. Moms, how many times have you sat with a child who's hurting physically, who's hurting emotionally, who's hurting mentally, and said to yourself or said to your child, Oh, how I wish, what? I could take it on. Every mother instinctively knows this. If I could just take on your pain so that you wouldn't have to live by it. That's love. It's all over the world. And are we surprised to see it all over the world? No, because God is the creator. And it would be impossible for us to do something more loving than the creator could do. And so he shows us all kinds of examples in the world. So when we're talking to people who are non-Christians, I think they can say, yes, I can see this as love. And then when you open up the Bible and say, guess what? God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, what? He died for us. That makes perfect sense. Just coming from a worldly perspective. Love is an action. It's not eliminating feelings, but it's based on a command. I think the thing that's so helpful here to remember is that when you just think about truth, you you typically think about truth shouting down to you. This is the right way. That's not how God operates. God steps in. He doesn't shout down. God is not shouting down instructions. He's stepping down. And He is picking you up. And He's going to carry you all the way home. If we're here at Christ Community Church, and we're just here to know the truth, we're going to be a church that stomps on people. If we're just here, if the pastor is here, if the elders are here, if the Sunday school teacher is here, just for truth, I'm just going to stomp on you. If I'm just going to love you, I'm not going to be able to show you which way to go. I'm just going to be going around in a circle trying to love you. And I'm going to say, no, go this way. Walk in the truth. And walk in the truth with love. The love that that lays its life down for the unlovely. The sermon just sets itself up perfectly for communion, does it not? 
do, do this in remembrance of me. What am I remembering? I wasn't lovely. I wasn't seeking after God. I wasn't wanting Him to get involved with my business. I was trying to keep Him at a stiff arm. And He said, Paul, I saw it. And I laid my life down for you. The Creator of the universe. And He comes on the night that He was betrayed and He says, a new command What's that new command? That you love one another. How? By laying your life down for one another. So he's given his body. He has given his blood. He has given his righteousness for your sin. And so all of those who are believers here, who are trusting in and following after Christ, not perfectly, but are receiving and accepting the love that is shown here. Welcome. If not, then I would just ask you to sit at your seat and think, well, what am I basing love on? What, what is the ground in which it operates for me? How would I know? I'll ask the elders to come forward. Let me pray together. Lord, I I pray for your special blessing on just these few moments. This is love. Not that we loved, but that you first loved us. That you gave yourself for us. Because that has happened, then we can love the unlovely. We can love the unlovable spouse, the unlovable child, the unlovable parent, the unlovable boss, the unlovable neighbor, the unlovable person who's sitting two rows down from me. Not because I feel like it, because I I recognize the ground in which I'm receiving love. It's the eternal spring that supplies. Lord, for those who are here who are still wondering about this, Lord, I I pray that they would sit and hear from you this morning. May this be a time of your encouraging your people, the, the chief shepherd, come to encourage those who are walking, walking in the right direction. In Jesus' name, amen.